This is KUAF 91.3 Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And this is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, May 26, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Timothy Dennis. Ahead on today's show, journalist and author David Gran, the award-winning New Yorker magazine staff writer and best-selling author, will be at Fayetteville Public Library next month, and we'll talk with Gran in about seven minutes. And later on today's show, Leah Uribe explores the depth of innocence in this week's perimeter. That's in our second half hour. Up first, every 10 years, the U.S. Census Bureau sends workers out across the nation to do something that sounds easy, but is obviously very challenging. Count everyone. Last week, the Census Bureau released their post-enumeration survey, indicating which states were overcounted or undercounted by the 2020 survey. Data found that Arkansas was the most undercounted state in the U.S., with more than 5% of residents not counted. No survey is perfect, and the decennial census survey is no exception. But between interferences from the Trump administration and a global pandemic, getting out to count people for the 2020 census was a challenge. Following every census is a follow-up audit called the Post-Enumeration Survey where they actually go to a sample of households across the nation. That's Allison Plyer, the chief demographer for the data center in Louisiana. And do a a very dogged effort to get them to actually respond to the census, find out, you know, what their response would have been a year ago had they responded. And then that gives them a, a strong sense of whether their efforts during the 2020 census itself were successful or not. If they go through all of that trouble to find out that they undercounted, why didn't they get it right the first time? Right. Well, the census has a limited budget, and they um, do the largest non-wartime labor mobilization that the country experiences. So it's, it's a massive endeavor as it is. And if they had an even larger budget, they could send people repeatedly to doors that don't answer, um, but uh, their budget is limited, and so they they can't do that much effort in the first place. The census is not just a headcount. There's demographic information, how many people are living in one house. A lot of data is collected through the census. And as Plyer mentions, it's hard to get that data if you don't answer the door. Another Allison, Allison Wright, works for the Arkansas Economic Development Institute, which is a partner of the U.S. Census Bureau with the state data center network. Other than the obvious impediments from the 2020 census, Wright says one factor may be the desire for privacy from citizens. A lot of people in the South tend to be more private with their information, I would say it that way, um, you know, or less willing sometimes to open the door to people who want to come figure out what's going on, you know, to government in general. But let's back up for a minute. The census generally does two things for states. One, it helps set congressional districts and provides details for states to draw the maps for each district. For some states, it increases or decreases the amount of districts altogether, although that didn't happen in Arkansas this time. But two, it sets the amount of federal funding a state is eligible for. So what is the impact of an undercount of this magnitude? Allison Plyer again. Well, it's really big. You know, that's that's about 160,000 people for Arkansas. Um, the census drives $1.5 trillion of federal funding every year. And so that's about 
$720 million a year to, to Arkansas that Arkansas won't get. And, you know, when we compare that to how much states invested in get out the count, I mean, even Alabama invested just, just over $150,000. So the return on investment is huge. And also, you know, these numbers really drive business investment too, right? Businesses um, that are looking to open brick and mortar stores, they rely on census data. There's no other data for them to look to, to figure out whether to open a Costco or a Walmart or a Starbucks or anything. And um, so when the state is undercounted, um, that's going to hurt uh, business investment as well. I reached out to Governor Asa Hutchinson for comments on the impact of the undercount, and he provided a statement saying, quote, I appointed a complete count committee chaired by Mayor George McGill of Fort Smith. This committee worked with mayors and many others to have everyone counted in the census. In addition, significant federal dollars were spent in education and marketing efforts, end quote. With each census survey, there does tend to be a small amount of under and overcount, but it is rarely significant in the technical sense of that term. This year, there were six states that were undercounted and eight that were overcounted by a statistically significant amount. Here's Allison Wright from the Arkansas Economic Development Institute again. Unfortunately, with the post-enumeration survey, the data they released is basically only that number at a state level, and so it clearly states in there that they can't tell you what happened within your state to cause the undercount or overcount. So because they can't, since the survey sample is so small, they can't release data by age or by race or by geography other than state level. So there's no clear definitive answer as to why our state in particular had such a big undercount. There are things that you can speculate, but there's no hard facts behind um, why specifically our state dealt with this 5% undercount. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a little frustrating. Um, yeah. I guess my question is, how do you know how to do it better if <laughs> if they don't tell you where you needed to, you know, where you needed to get better counts? Right. Um, so there's, I mean, right now for this, thing you can't, but the thing you can try to do, and which is what we tried to do before the census, is to let people understand how important it is. And so if you can help people understand why it's important for them to respond for their, you know, for their day-to-day lives, how it affects them um, with the funding and all that, then you can hopefully get more people to answer down the road. But Otherwise, no, I can't really tell you, like it, like I said, on national level, I can tell you who was most effective um, by it, but I can't tell you in Arkansas. So it's, yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Both Plyer and Wright point out that with state data centers working in collaboration with the U.S. Census Bureau, getting an accurate annual population estimate will help provide a more appropriate amount of federal funding to Arkansas. But... Not getting $720 million from the federal government, even for just a couple of years, is nothing to sneeze at. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. The Artisphere Festival Orchestra concludes its 2022 residency at Walton Arts Center May 27th with a finale performance of works by Strauss and Stravinsky, featuring more than 90 premier musicians from around the world under the baton of maestro Corrado Rivera's. Tickets available at artisphererefestival.org. Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers playful exploration of the arts and sciences through new daily experiences and activities for the family. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. 
amazium.org to discover more. This is Ozarks at Large. New York Times bestselling author David Gran will speak and sign books at Fayetteville Public Library June 2nd. Gran's book, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI, details a series of murders and shocking crimes in the 1920s against the oil-rich Osage Nation. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith asked Gran about how he found the initial story and about his journey of visiting Oklahoma and the Osage Nation to find the truth. Always, you know, have my ears kind of, you know, attuned for story ideas or things I haven't heard or things that kind of spark my curiosity. And somebody had mentioned in the case of the of, of what had happened in Oklahoma in the early 20th century when the members of the Osage Nation had become the wealthiest people per capita in the world because of oil under the land, and then they began to be serially murdered. But I could find very little about it when I tried to look it up. And so eventually I actually made a trip out to the Osage Nation, and I visited the Osage Nation Museum. And when I was there, the museum director had showed me this uh, photograph that was taken in 1924. It was actually on the wall, and it showed members of the Osage Nation along with white settlers, but part of the photograph was missing and had been cut out. And I asked the museum director, Catherine Redcorn, what had happened to it. And she said it contained this figure so frightening. She had removed it and she pointed to the missing panel. And she said the devil was standing right there. And that was really the origins. Books don't always have origins, but that was really the origin story for this project. Because at that moment, I was so arrested by what she told me. And and, and also just struck by the fact that Catherine and, and others at the museum had removed the photograph, not to forget what had happened, but because they can't forget. And yet here there were people like me and, and so many others who really didn't know about this history. We had excised it from our conscience. So part of my project was to try to, and research was to address my own ignorance. So you find, you go down to Osage, you you are in this museum, you know, hear firsthand accounts of, of, of these primary documents. What does the rest of the research process look like for you after that? So it was interesting. So after I spoke with her, you know, I was immediately wanted to tell the story, but the larger question became, you know, could I tell the story? In other words, would I be able to find the underlying materials to tell it, to document it, you know, in a, in a kind of narrative fashion where you would really get a sense of what happened and uh, the perpetrators and really try to be able to record the voices of the victims as best as possible. And that really began a, a, a much longer process than I had originally imagined because it was a challenge. And that began a five-year process of researching and writing. And it kind of had two, two, two kind of pathways. One pathway was trying to track down descendants of both um, the murderers and the victims, many of whom will still live in the same neighborhood, and to be able to interview them, uh, get a sense of uh, what they knew about their family's history, about what their ancestors had happened to them or what their ancestors had done, and to see if they had any letters or correspondence. So that was one element. And then the other element was in these kind of archives uh, where I spent a lot of time just trying to dig up documents. And, you know, often it would, these would be kind of unfruitful, a lot of hours just kind of looking through records so you don't find anything. But then there is always, as there is with historical research, that kind of these wonderful, unexpected surprises of, of where there are records and documents that really help you to tell the story. One of the, some of the documents I found in, in an archive in Oklahoma included the secret grand jury testimony on one of the trials of investigations of some of the, of the culprits. And that had never been made public. And it was just kind of 
just kind of dumped loosely, unmarked in a in a file. And so um, it was really those two processes. And for me, the most rewarding part was really spending a lot of time with the OCA during the research process. I would often uh, live in the community for you know a couple months a year at different periods, going around and 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 being able to you know get their stories as best as I could. How did that experience influence the narrative, the the writing process thereafter? Well, in lots of different ways. I mean, for example, one of the main people I write about in the book uh, is a woman named Molly Burkhart, who's kind of this remarkable Osage woman whose family is being targeted and being killed one after the other. And she's somebody who kind of crusades for justice despite the great danger to her. And one of the people I tracked down was her granddaughter, Margie Burkhardt. And, and, you know, Margie told me stories about her family um, and, um, you know, took me to the graveyards where so many of her family members were buried. But, you know, talking to her really drove home to me how kind of the legacy of these crimes and how much they still reverberate to this day, because we're not talking about you know, we're not talking about the 1700s. We're not talking about the early colonial period. We're talking about, you know, the birth of modernity in, in, in the United States and, and in the early 20th century. So moments like that were just very powerful and helped shape the narrative. Um, also speaking to many Osage, um, I began to get a sense that the the breadth of these crimes from them was much wider than the FBI, which was called in to investigate. It became one of the first major homicide cases. Talking to those age gave me a sense that there were many cases and crimes that were never properly investigated. And so did some of the documents I found in the archives. And as I began to look at these documents, I began to get a sense that it really, in some ways, kind of destroyed the original notion of the book I had, which was that these were crimes committed by, you know, a very singular evil figure, along with a few henchmen. And I came to realize over time that these was much more a story about not who did it, but who didn't do it, that it really was about a culture of killing where there was a great deal of complicity. There were doctors who administered poisons, and there were morticians who covered up bullet wounds, and there were uh, all sorts of uh, law enforcement, other members, businessmen, members of society who were either complicit in the crimes or stayed quiet and were complicit in their silence because they were getting so wealthy from the Osage oil money and stealing their Osage, stealing uh, their money. And so, you know, I always say when you have research, you have to have an open mind and you have to follow the story as it takes you, not as you imagine it is. And so that was, you know, a process of me coming to realize that this was, there really was a much deeper, darker conspiracy than the FBI had previously had ever exposed. And you kind of answered my, my next question. How did the research and kind of the final stages of research compare to the conclusions or firsthand accounts that you had kind of assumed prior to to really yeah. investigating and getting into yeah. the so thick I, of it. Yeah, so I mean, I think that was really it. I mean, I had kind of read a little bit about the case, and what I read was, and what the FBI and the story they had kind of, what they had concluded, or at least what they had stated, was that, again, this was a crime by kind of one singular awful, evil man and some of his henchmen, and that they had caught these three and kind of solved the crime, case closed. And as I came to realize over time from talking to so many Osage who realized that these crimes, who knew that these crimes were much broader, and then by finding records and documents that actually, you know, really backed that up, 
um, my original notion of this, the book I thought I was going to write was completely shattered, and I had to kind of look at it afresh and 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 and, and tell that other story or the the deeper story to try to get closer to the truth. And one of the one of the things that it also made me realize was I had always kind of thought that you know when you're a reporter and research that you you can when there are these kind of great racial injustices and great crimes like this that you can you can't restore justice but as a historian and as an investigative reporter you can at least try to record who the perpetrators were and to document the voices of the victims so that they we hear them and they ring out to this day but one of the things i realized when i tried to look into many of the unresolved cases is that that was no longer possible that because these cases were never properly investigated because the suspects and the victims are now deceased it's often very hard to know many osages live to this day with doubts not knowing precisely who the perpetrator was that killed one of their family members and and for me you know, I understood or I came to understand that, you know, the perpetrators in many cases had not only erased the victims, but in many cases, they had also erased their history. So you've researched, talked to people, finally written the story. It it gets published. What is that response like from readers, from if the Osage responded at all? What, what kinds of things are they saying? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's always hard as an author to fully know you know, what, what a response is, um, and to, to completely gouge, I always prefer others to kind of respond and speak for themselves, how they react to, to, to the book or to the work. But, um, I would say somewhat surprised that the book did seem to strike a chord with, a with a much broader audience than, uh, who seemed to be willing to kind of read and reckon with the history, whether, you know, they agreed or disagreed, but they seemed to want to reckon with it. Um, and I will say for those age, I always, you know, they, you know, I'm sure there were lots of different reactions, but, um, but, um, you know, one of the things I did when the, when the book was being published, I said to my publisher, you know, the one thing you have to do is you, you got to send me back to these small towns in Osage County where the Osage nation, you know, to their lands where I'd spent so much time because so many of these people helped me. So many Osage elders, you know, told me their stories and, and really opened up to me in a remarkable way. And I wanted to make sure I went back there and shared what I had found that needed to be my first stop. And the publisher was great. I said, we'll send you out there. And so I went and I remember someone was publishing houses with me and we were going to a small town that, uh, you know, has suffered a small rural town in, in Fairfax that has suffered a fair amount of like a lot of uh, rural areas in terms of the economics of that area and with a kind of dwindling population. But it was a kind of center of a place, my research with a lot of people there who I'd spoken to. And they had arranged for me, um, they have a kind of a theater in front that they've been trying to restore uh, in the downtown area. And they had, we're going to hold a, an event for me there. And so I got there and I really didn't know if anyone w would be there. And when I got there, there were just these uh, lines of, of, of so many Osage people brought their family members and you know, I spent hours signing books and, and talking to them. And then later that evening, the Osage had, a, you know, held an event for me at their center in Gray Horse, where they have many of their dances and where I presented the book to the community and they presented a blanket for me. And I will say that, you know, I've been doing this, been a reporter for a long time, but I've never had an experience quite like that, a more meaningful experience uh, was something that will stay with me for my life, you know. And, you know, one of the writing books can be hard uh, or challenging, but, you know, one of the great rewards of them is 
you get to know so many people who you would never meet. And I've made so many wonderful friends in the community who continue to be uh, good friends and who I still go back to see. Throughout your research, your investigations, through your writing, I wonder if you consider yourself a journalist, a researcher, a writer, a historian. Which of those comes first? What really compels me and drives me is the story. And to learn everything about that story and to tell it as a narrative, hopefully tell it in a way that will hold readers and make them care about whatever I'm writing about. And so that can be something that, like my newest book said about three centuries ago, um, but hopefully it will read as if you were there. And it can also be something that happened, you know, just yesterday or last week. So what really drives me and compels me is the story. And then I try to apply the same techniques that I would, whether the story is historical or whether it's contemporary, which is, you know, with an investigator's dispassionate kind of outlook and hopefully with a kind of doggedness to overturn, follow every lead and get every fact. And then ultimately the challenge in all these cases is to somehow piece them together and to tell them in a kind of compelling way. That was David Grant, author and staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. We spoke Tuesday over Zoom. He will be at the Fayetteville Public Library for an author talk and book signing on June 2nd from 7 to 8. Tickets are free and available for registration at faylib.org. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. It's almost June, and that means summer is just around the corner. Time to kick your feet up, grab some ice cream, go to the pool, take to the friendly skies. And while you take that summer break, we at KUAF know you still want to stay caught up with everything going on in the world. But here's the thing, we can't do that without your support. As our financial year comes to a close on June 30th, we're asking for your contribution to keep the news, music, and entertainment you rely on on the air. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. This is your public... So while you're hanging up that out-of-office sign, you can rest assured that KUAF will always be on. Make your donation at supportkuaf.com. And thanks. Kelly Kemp McClintock, the chief advancement officer for Springdale nonprofit, the Jones Center, is retiring. Kent McClintock has been the organization's chief fundraiser since 2004, following a 15-year-long television career. Kent McClintock took on the newly created position that is responsible for the center's fundraising and public relations and develops and nurtures relationships with donors and sponsors. According to the press release, she will remain a contract employee for the next few months through some of the organization's major special events. The Jones Center has not yet announced a successor in the position. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville earlier today announced one of the largest museum endowments in the country dedicated to developing the next generation of arts leadership. A $10 million gift from the Alice L. Walton Foundation will support and expand the museum's internship program. Walton is the museum's founder and board chair emeritus. According to the news release, Crystal Bridges is partnering with historically black colleges and universities, like the Atlanta-based Spelman College and Fisk University in Nashville, to recruit interns from populations currently underrepresented in arts leadership. Walton's endowment gift also allows Crystal Bridges to add an administrative position focused solely on the internship program. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. I'm Paul Gatling. This week, the latest business journal is out, 
And we've got a cover story from Jeff Delarosa on technology jobs. They are in demand in Northwest Arkansas, and employers and organizations have programs and money available to support the continued development of the tech workforce. GB Kaz, the CEO of Conway-based consulting firm Emory Group, is working with the Northwest Arkansas Council to address the issue. And we've got some comments from him about the work being done. There's also some perspective from Chris Adams, director of the Northwest Arkansas Technology Summit, Acre Trader CEO Carter Malloy, and Joe Rollins, Director of Workforce Development for the Northwest Arkansas Council. That's our cover story this week. You can find the digital version of the magazine online at nwabusinessjournal.com. There's more news after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Lou McAllister has been traveling Arkansas for months, and he knows a thing or two about who has broadband, who needs broadband, and how hard it would be to deliver for many remote citizens. McAllister is the CEO of Broadband Development Group, and he has been tasked by the Arkansas Legislature to help create a master plan for expanding broadband internet across the state. Broadband Development Group produced a progress report on that work last month. To go over some of the findings, McAllister sat down recently with Roby Brock. The final details of your report indicate that there's about 210,000 households that are underserved and with broadband across the state of Arkansas. About 100,000 of them are being addressed through some federal and state programs. All this total tab may be around $550 million. Are you surprised by the results of, uh, of your survey here about how big that price tag is and how many folks don't have the broadband access they need? Well, we are surprised by a couple of things, Roby. One is that the problem isn't as big as we thought it was going to be. Uh, the original FCC map showed us having 251,000 households underserved. So we corrected the FCC map. That number came down to 210,000. And then when we looked at the grant programs to see that 100,000 of those already have funding to them, we were very surprised the problem isn't quite as big as we thought. Um, the price tag is um, a little, a little um, surprising, maybe uh, because um, of the 110,000 that we need to get to. About 31,000 of those could consume as much as 30 to 40 percent of the remaining remaining budget. That's a big number for 10,000 households. But um, we well, you know this is a solvable problem, and there's money for it, so we're we're pretty pleased about that. 
Yeah, you and I talked earlier when we when this report was still or this uh, study was still underway, and you were pulling information together that you know there's just going to be some households that it is going to it's not going to be a great cost proposition to get broadband sure. to. So uh, maybe walk me through what is what what goes into these costs to reach these households, particularly the larger universe of two hundred and ten thousand. What what has to happen to reach the majority of those households? It, these are big projects. These are big engineering projects. This is a lot of fiber optic cable that has to be either buried or strung along poles, rights of way, and so forth. Um, so they're just they're big projects. Lots of engineering, lots of material, lots of labor. Um, we used an average cost of about forty thousand dollars per mile to bury uh, fiber. And that's after talking to about 30 different providers around the state and looking at some of their cost figures and some of their estimates and using some industry averages. So $40,000 a mile to get uh, fiber optic cable to folks is, um, you know, pretty, um, pretty much a reasonable number. So um, if you're passing a lot of households, $40,000 a mile, if you're passing, you know, 4,000 households, not too bad. Yeah. If you're having to go way out in the country to pick up one person that lives, you know, out, you know, really out in a very remote area, it may be twenty thousand dollars just to get or more just to get to that person. Yeah. Is fiber the best technology to reach everyone? Are there other technologies out there for reaching some of these particularly remote regions of the state? There there are other technologies and we we address those other technologies in the report and we give a little primer uh you know, in the back and in an appendix about those, all, all of the technologies exist for a reason. There's an application for all of the technologies. Um, we're not going to put fiber optic cable to uh, a farmer's uh, machine out in the middle of thousands of acres. Uh, that's, you know, he, he's going to need to connect wirelessly probably. Um, the, the, the reason we talk about fiber optic cable so much is because it future proofs us. Right now, the the sort of standard that we have for for uh, broadband internet access is 100 megabits per second download speed and 20 meg- megabits per second upload speed. That doesn't mean a lot to some people, but it just lets you do your movies and stuff really well. But there are some providers that are already selling gigabit by gigabit service, and other providers that have have now announced two gigabit service or five gigabit service or eight gigabit service to to residential uh, customers. The way te- the way the wireless technology works today, and what we think of as the future of wireless technology, it won't it won't ever keep up with that kind of demand and that kind of speed. Fiber will. Fiber has theoretically virtually unlimited capacity to go faster in the future. We don't want to spend a billion dollars or $550 million or whatever the price tag is, and then turn around in five years or seven years or 10 years and be right back where we started and have to do it all over again. Yeah, makes sense. Let me ask you this question. You can offer your opinion if you choose, but you are not required in the way I'm going to phrase this question. Uh, Reaching those last 10,000 to 30,000, those remote areas of the state, is the debate among policymakers, legislators in particular, to spend this money, is it going to be, is it worth the investment? Is that really going to be at the core of some of this conversation? At, at the risk of um, being out, yeah, I think it is. I, 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 that, is that is the policy debate. Um, 
you know, jokingly, we, we talk about it would be cheaper to move people into town and buy, you know, build them a house. Um, uh, but you, you just, you know, we don't, we don't tell people where to live. People can live where they want to live. Um, so that is going to be the policy debate. And, you know, we're, if we spend that money, there's no guarantee that that person is going to buy service. There's no guarantee that that person is going to be able to afford to buy a service. Um, I'm glad I'm not one of the policymakers on that part. But uh, yeah, that, that is the, a big debate. In other news this week, the NWA Land Trust named Grady Spann executive director and CEO. Spann spent nearly three decades with Arkansas State Parks and retired last year as director. The NWA Land Trust is the first accredited land trust in Arkansas and protects more than 6,000 acres of land across 40 properties in northwest Arkansas. And Walmart says it will automate all of its regional distribution centers. The company will expand its partnership with AI and robotics specialist Symbotics. Plans call for the retailer to deploy the software platform at all 42 of its regional distribution centers over the next several years. Last July, Walmart announced that Symbotics technology would be implemented in 25 regional distribution centers. For more news, visit us at nwabusinessjournal.com and follow along at both Facebook and Twitter, where you can keep up with our reporting each and every day. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is a Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large. I'm Timothy Dennis, and joining me in the Herald and Blanche Calk News Studio is Matthew Moore. How are you doing today, Matthew? Howdy, Timothy. Uh, it's that time when we normally talk about music. Last week, we didn't have this segment because of Mozart in the Museum. Yes. Big thanks to Walton Arts Center and Crystal Bridges for partnering with us on this year's Mozart in the Museum. It really is a highlight of every year, and this year was absolutely no exception. Absolutely. Another programming note to make you aware of, this Sunday on Weekend Ozarks at Large and on Monday's Memorial Day edition of the show, I will be revisiting past performances inside the Furman Garner Performance Studio that use the Mary Baker Rumsey Steinway piano. Yes. Uh, got a little bit of variety planned. There will be some rock, some folk, some jazz, some classical, and who knows what else I'll dig up. But that's on Sunday's Weekend Ozarks at Large and Monday's Daily Edition of Ozarks at Large. That's right. But before we get to that, we've yes. got live music. We've got a really nice weekend coming up it's not going to be 40 degrees it probably isn't going to be 100 degrees <laughs> might not be raining yes so it's... tell us what to expect okay briefly i'll tell you about this show at george's friday night the band modeling who we had here for the lunch hour a couple months ago fantastic they are having their second the second of their album release shows for their new album friday night at george's in fayetteville uh, I'll have a longer conversation with them about that on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. Mm -hmm. Just know that the show tomorrow night at George's is $12 cover. gets underway at about 9.15. Very good. Smoke and Barrel Tavern in Fayetteville is going to have a sludge, metal, and heavy rock show featuring TV Preacher, Dust Lord, and Mudblood. That shows $5 at the door. Gets underway at 9 o'clock tomorrow. Again, that's at Smoke and Barrel in Fayetteville. Moving up north to Bentonville, Bike Rack Brewing Company is going to have RLI on stage. 
That gets underway at 5 o'clock tomorrow night on the patio at Bike Rack Brewing Company in Bentonville. It's a free show. Also in Bentonville, another patio show, Fred's Hickory Inn is going to have Modern August on their patio. Mm. Say what you want, say what you want. You know I don't believe you. We say that there's nothing wrong. Say what you want, say what you want. I am tired of breaking even. I am tired of... That gets underway at 7 o'clock tomorrow night again at Fred's Hickory Inn. That's in Bentonville. Over in Rogers, the Walmart Amp is going to have Cody Jinks yeah. on stage, big touring musician. Yeah. I'm more interested in the opening act, which is Lucas Nelson and Promise of the Real. Yeah, son of Willie Nelson. Yeah, and they actually backed up Neil Young for a few years. That's right. Uh, for a couple tours a few years ago. That's right. I've seen them live. They put on a fantastic show. And I hope you find yourself before I find somebody else to be my love. Tickets for that show with Cody Chinks and Lucas Nelson start at $35, gets underway at 6 o'clock tomorrow night at the Walmart Amp in Rogers. Still in Rogers tomorrow night, City Pump is going to have the Damn Duo on stage. Mm. It's two of the three members of the band, the Damn Neighbors, mm. local folk bluegrass band. That gets underway at 6 o'clock tomorrow night at City Pump in Rogers. Then in Eureka Springs, Chelsea's is going to have the rock band Magnolia Brown on stage. Mm. Gets underway at 9 o'clock. Again, that is tomorrow night at Chelsea's in Eureka Springs. All righty. Jumping ahead to Saturday, Fateful Public Library is going to have an album release show for Ashton Barbary. Yeah, we just had her on the show. Sounded phenomenal. Yeah, and if you are considering going, I would probably consider going ahead and getting tickets or reserving your seats. It is free, mm-hmm. but the number of reserved seats is dwindling quickly. Yes. You can reserve those seats at faylib.org. That concert Saturday gets underway at 2 o'clock. All right. Still in Fable Saturday night, George's Majestic Lounge is going to have a bit of a different band on stage, Shanghai Doom. Mm. They are a rising experimental bass duo from Central Jersey. A bass duo? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Tickets for that show are $15 in advance. They go up to $20 on Saturday. That gets underway at 8.30 Saturday night, again at George's in Fayetteville. Nomad's Trailside in Fayetteville Saturday night is going to have what they're billing as the NWA Ascending Artist Showcase. They're Mm. going to feature local artists and songwriters Bird Soldier White, Skylar Conover, Alexander Astor, Paige Van Horn, and many, many, many others. Mm. They're asking for an $8 cover for that show. Gets underway at 8 o'clock Saturday night at Nomad's Trailside in Midtown Fayetteville. Saturday night is the start of the Forest Concert Series at Crystal Bridges in Bentonville. The opening concert is going to feature Adam Fawcett and the Spectral Class. Love that. We just had Adam Fawcett here at the lunch hour. Yeah, last week, and he put on an amazing performance. Right outside of Waldron no cat, no hat, no cauldron. She's a moonlight slave. She'll make you walk to your grave. 
What she wants, she will get. What she wants, she will get. Well, I don't want to live forever. Admission is $12. It goes down to $10 for Crystal Bridges members and youths under 18 get in for free. Mm. That show gets underway at 7 o'clock in the forest at Crystal Bridges in Bentonville. Butterfield Stage in Rogers Saturday night is going to have the psychedelic rock band Green Acres. Mm. Stage. It's part of the Rail Yard Live series, and admission is free. It will get underway at 8 o'clock Saturday night, again in downtown Rogers. Over in Eureka Springs Saturday night, the Gravel Bar is going to have Cody Nielsen on stage. Had him in the studio a couple months ago, promoting his new album under yeah. the band name Moonsong. Oh, yeah. That show gets underway at 7 o'clock Saturday night at the Gravel Bar in Eureka Springs. Awesome. Down in Winslow Saturday evening, Ozark Folkways is going to have the Carousel Orchestra on stage. This is a rescheduled concert. I believe it got rained out a couple weeks ago. Mm. Uh, the Carousel Orchestra, they're an old-time music trio headed by the venerable Clark Buehling. Uh, their music was reportedly inspired by carousels and street organs. And they perform waltzes, marches, gallops, and other forms of street music. All right. They're asking for a $10 donation to support Ozark Folkways and the Carousel Orchestra. That show gets underway at 6 o'clock Saturday evening at Ozark Folkways in Winslow. Sunday. Turnbow Park in Springdale is going to have Tony Redman and the Jeff Horton Band. That's right. It's part of the Live from Turnbow series. These shows normally take place on Thursday evenings, but I believe they have pushed it because of the fear of inclement weather this week. Sure. So that will take place at 6.30 Sunday night at Turnbow Park in downtown Springdale. Sunday afternoon, God Hole Brewing in Eureka Springs is having someone on stage that you've talked to recently. Okay. Pat Ryan Key. Fantastic. I yeah. love him. Great local songwriter. That show gets underway at 3 o'clock at Gotthold Brewing in Eureka Springs. Nice. And then jumping ahead all the way to next Thursday, George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville is going to have Parker Millsap on stage. Nice. I actually spoke with Parker recently by phone. We'll have that conversation on Tuesday's Ozarks at Large. And as of right now, we are scheduled to have Parker here at the Carver Center for Public Radio next Thursday when he gets into town for a conversation and performance that we will have on an upcoming edition of Ozarks at Large. That's great. I love Parker. That show next Thursday night, tickets are $18 in advance, $20 day of. That gets underway at 8 o'clock next Thursday at George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville. Very good. Timothy Dennis, thank you so much. Thank you.
This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We open Sound Perimeter today with Australian composer Zinnia Chan's piece in the land of curiosity. Chan, a multidisciplinary artist, composer, pianist, art curator, and educator, wrote in the land of curiosity in 2019. In her words, this piece quote, draws inspiration from the notion of curiosity inspired by a narrative written when I was a child and by children who surround me. This piece follows an exploration of curiosity from the beginning with the unknown until it concludes at its arrival with something familiar and known, end quote. I was particularly taken by the beauty of this piece, the sounds of the double reeds, how the different lines find and support each other and made me think about both the simplicity and the depth of innocence.
that was In the Land of Curiosity for Oboe, Bassoon and Piano by Australian composer Zinia Chen, performed by Ensemble Francais, a Melbourne-based group founded in 2016 and formed by oboist Emmanuel Casimatis, bassoonist Matthew Neal and pianist Nicholas Young. Spanish composer Javier Navarrete is best known for his collaboration with Mexican filmmaker Guillermo del Toro in the film Pan's Labyrinth. With this music, Navarrete received an Oscar Academy Award nomination for Best Score in 2007. The soundtrack for this movie is based on a lullaby, which suits the storyline of a movie that explores complex, real and mythical stories through the eyes of a child. Let us listen to Pan's Labyrinth Lullaby, interpreted by the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. That was Pan's Labyrinth Lullaby, a piece by Spanish composer Javier Navarrete and part of the soundtrack for Guillermo del Toro's film of the same name, interpreted by the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. Today in Sound Perimeter, we explore the depth of innocence and the complexity of life as seen through children's eyes and through music. This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. Sound Perimeter is a segment dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sound and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. Find more information about our composers featured today in our program notes. See you soon. This is a Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, 
by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is 91.3 FM, KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bella Vista, and Cincinnati. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas, and Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. I'm Timothy Dennis. And I'm Matthew Moore. Contributors to today's show included Rachel Sanchez-Smith and Leah Uribe. The Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report with Paul Gatling is produced by Stephanie Brock and comes to us through our partnership with Talk Business and Politics. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah and is written and performed by Daryl Sean. KUAF's operations manager is Pete Hartman, and KUAF's general manager is Lee Wood. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. for another brand new edition of Ozarks at Large. And don't forget this Sunday on weekend Ozarks at Large and Monday for a Memorial Day edition of Ozarks at Large. We're taking some time to listen to some past piano performances from the Furman Garner Performance Studio. You can always listen to past features, stories, interviews, and full editions of Ozarks at Large at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. And you can take Ozarks at Large with you wherever you go with the free Ozarks at Large podcast. You can subscribe through Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or most anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for spending part of your Thursday with us. Please stay dry, be well, and have a great rest of your Thursday.